Uh, as I began, I, uh, when I was in college, I spent a uh, summer in Lebanon. So in the country of Lebanon in the Middle East was like this mission trip thing through crew. It was an amazing time. I learned a lot um, while I was there. The culture was absolutely amazing. And you know, you're there, you're like doing the Jesus thing and you're like, you're like an overseas missionary. So when we're trying to rank like how like spiritually Christian somebody is, I mean, that's like A plus, is it not? And so I'm over there doing this thing. And uh, when I came back, uh, a couple weeks after I came back, Christina, who's my wife now, but for the second time, some of you guys know the story, she broke up with me. This is the second time she broke up with me. Now, the reason I say that this morning is I was, I was angry. Like, I was mad. I was, like, doing this thing. And I, was, I remember thinking, man, if I didn't go to Lebanon, we would still be together. Like, I, I thought that. And I had, like, these, like, like, these, like, souvenirs. I had, like, this flag, some of these engravings, like, this, like, box of stuff that I brought home from Lebanon. And I was so angry with it, with God, about what had happened that I, like, threw this in the, like, in this, like, closet thing, never to look at it. I was like, I'm never going to look at this stuff again, right? And it might sound funny now because that was years ago. I was in college, and Christina and I are at Mary. But at the time, what I thought was, God, I did what you asked me to do, and this is what happened. Like, I'm not asking for, like, something amazing for, in my life to happen, but, like, things got worse because I was out of the country f- over the summer. Like, be, literally, I did what I thought you wanted me to do, and I'm punished, right? And, and I say that because this morning, as we continue our time in Genesis, here's the question we're looking at. What do we need to remember when God doesn't come through? Because my guess is, while your story might be different, there are times in your life when you did the right thing or when you were trying to do the right thing, and God didn't come through. He didn't do what you thought he should have done. Uh, He didn't uh, love you or care for you or walk with you in the way that you thought he should have. What do we need to remember when God does not do for us what we feel like he should? What do we need to remember when God doesn't come through? That's what we're looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Genesis 39 and 40? If not, there's a black one around you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. I'm actually excited about this text. If you've been with us in Genesis, we've read some really difficult passages, uh, especially over the last couple of, a couple of weeks. Uh, today's the opposite of that. We're going to see somebody do a good thing. And I'm also excited because as we pick up the story or continue the story of Joseph, today we are reading a story that's very familiar to a lot of people. But as often happens, many times when we read these stories, we think certain things are going on in the text when they're actually not. And we're going to see something quite beautiful happen. And so in Genesis chapter 39, we're continuing the story of Joseph. He's one of the sons of Jacob. So he's the fourth generation from Abraham who God called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. What we've seen is every single generation from Abraham on, they've all blown it. All of them. Yet God was still faithful. Last week, we looked at the story or part of the story of Judah, which is one of Joseph's older brothers, and he was really unfaithful. He did some unfaithful things, and yet God still promises, as we saw last week, that the Messiah is actually going to come through the line of Judah, even though Judah royally messed up. And today, we're going to focus back in on Joseph and really focus in on the Joseph story for the rest of the time in Genesis. He was Jacob's 11th son out of 12, but he was the most favored. Uh, Last two weeks ago, we saw that he was, even though he was the 11th of the 12th, sons. He didn't have to do any of the menial work. He was like the manager over the rest of his family. He had dreams that the rest of his family was going to one day bow down to him. And so his brothers first decided to kill him, but then they changed their mind and they decided to sell him into slavery. And we feel like this is going to be the end of Joseph's story, that he was sold into slavery. But we're going to return to him starting in chapter 39, verse 1. It says this. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt. 
an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. So again, remember he was sold by his brothers into slavery by some traveling people. It was the Ishmaelites on their way down to Egypt. He ends up being sold to a high-ranking official named Potiphar. It's, it's hard to uh, precisely understand exactly what Potiphar's role was, but we do know that he was a high-ranking Egyptian official. And one of the things he did was he oversaw the imprisonment of senior members of the king's staff, so or those who were disloyal to the king or the king took issue with for whatever reason. So he oversaw not just like a typical dungeon or jail, but like a political dungeon or jail, like the ones that uh, overcrossed Pharaoh or Pharaoh didn't like for some reason or, or like high-ranking political figures. Uh, he oversaw a really big, important part of the Egyptian kind of disciplinary uh, uh, hierarchy, if you will. These people that are in that jail mattered for some reason, and that is who Potiphar is over, which also means he has a lot of access to Pharaoh as well. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving the household of, the, of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned and in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And so Joseph, again, now he's in slavery. God is still with him. He is still blessing the things that he does. And as, as house slave, what this essentially means is that he gets elevated to a higher position than typical slaves were. So he was no longer involved in kind of the menial hard labor, but he was kind of a manager over other slaves. He wasn't doing the strenuous farming and laboring. He was kind of running and making sure things were going according to plan. Potiphar clearly in this text knows Joseph's religious convictions and that Joseph's God seemed to bless whatever Joseph did, which also means he blessed the Potiphar's, Potiphar's house. This also, by the way, is a nod back to what God promised Abraham when he first called him, that those, that those who are in his vicinity or those who are around the family of God will be blessed. So Potiphar is being blessed just because he's in proximity with Joseph. Now, uh, he's only concerned here, it says in verse 6, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. In other words, he trusts Joseph with everything. It's kind of like Joseph was his chief of staff. And the food he ate means like being poisoned. That was the only thing he was worried about. Like he still kind of made sure somehow, some way that, that people weren't like overtaking his position by poisoning him. But other than that, Joseph ran everything. He had high esteem, high trust, and clearly everything Joseph did turned out well for Potiphar. Then it says this, six, if, this in verse 6, if we keep reading the second part. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. He looked a lot like Dylan. Oh, is that, is that, I don't know if yours says that. I don't know who, who printed my notes out. Um, and then verse 7, after some time, his master's wife, this is Potiphar's wife, looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. So Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph. Uh, she desires Joseph. She wants Joseph to sleep with her, verse 8. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. 
So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. So, so uh, quite uh, incredibly, Joseph refuses Potiphar's wife's advances. As you saw here, this is also not a one-time thing. Uh, it's also, I think, just worth pointing out that Potiphar's wife would have been very attractive. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's different nowadays, but it's even like today, like the wealthier you are, the better diets you have, the better medical things you have uh, uh, um, available to you, the attractive, more attractive you are. Now, obviously, in the ancient Egypt, they didn't have all the advances that we have, but being Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, a high-ranking official, this means that they ate a good diet. They had the best skincare available at that time. Like she would have been just because of her ability of where she lived, her status, she would have been very attractive uh, just in general and probably attractive as well as Potiphar's wife. So she's very attractive. Uh, she has authority over Joseph. That, in other words, she's inviting Joseph to do this. And he says, no, it's a big deal. I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad talking about how big a deal this was that Joseph would say no to this woman who's essentially, as we'll see, like is going to be like, giving himself over to him, her herself over to him. I remember before puberty, I remember like being into girls and thinking they were cute. But I remember also thinking like saying no to a woman who's like trying to sleep with you is like saying no to like not stealing a candy bar at the store or like not lying. Like I thought like those were just like all equally easy to do, right? And then as you get older, you realize, no, this was a, a big deal that he could have gotten what he wanted and it would have been her the, her the one doing it and everything would have been fine. Like he would have been okay to do so, but he doesn't. And again, remember, this is not a one-time thing. As you read the story, you might, it might be easy to think like there was this one time that she, no, repeatedly she tried to do this. And so Joseph, in contrast to so many people we've read already, in fact, even two of his brothers, Reuben and Judah, uh, he does not sleep with someone as a means of gaining dominance. So again, sleeping with someone was also like sexual dominance was a thing in the ancient world. He would sleep with somebody's wife or somebody's servants or whatever to try to say, I'm the one in charge now. But he doesn't do so because Potiphar trusts him with everything. So notice his response. I can't do this to Potiphar, and I also can't do this to my God. I'm not going to dishonor my God in this way, right? How could he sin before his Lord? Now, even more significant, again, this is, we don't live in this cultural moment, so it's hard for us to fully appreciate just how hard this would have been for Joseph. In the ancient world, or even probably even today, in slave societies, sexual promiscuity was a very normal feature. Now, more typically, it happened from male slave owners than female slave owners, but female slave owners could do it as well, especially in a high-ranking society like this, where if you were a slave, you did whatever your masters told you to do. And if they wanted to sleep with you, you did it. Like, it wasn't even, like, really a choice. So the fact that Joseph is resisting something that was the cultural expectation, I mean, he's, in some ways, putting himself in danger by saying no to her. And so uh, she was insistent. She kept doing it. Also, the text doesn't say this, but we talked about previously, when someone is so um, intentional about sexual behavior like this, it likely means it's not the first time they've done this. This likely, and we'll see this here in a few, ver in a few verses as well, this is likely not the first time that Potiphar's wife has slept with their slaves. Otherwise, why would she be so comfortable being so forward? It's probably not the first time she's done this. So what we need to understand from at least Joseph's perspective right here is that Joseph is a good and righteous man. We're meant to see that Joseph is a good and righteous man. He does the right things. He says the right things. And his motivation is not just to be a good person. It's to honor God. 
Like, he's the one. Like, we're reading, reading all these people who failed and failed. Like, this guy's finally getting it. In other words, when you look at the life of Joseph, he's the type of guy who doesn't deserve to be dumped, right? He does not deserve the cancer diagnosis. He does not deserve to be laid off from his job. He does not deserve to be sexually abused or to be cheated on or to be betrayed or to be enslaved. If you want to talk about who deserves things and who doesn't, Joseph does not deserve any of this. And so you might think because he's honoring God and he's even in slavery, like he hasn't turned his back from him. He's like not going to sleep around. You might think, well, then clearly God is going to bless him, right? God clearly is going to bless Joseph because he's such a great guy. But this happens instead if we continue reading verse 11. Now, one day he went into the house, that's Potiphar's house, to do his work. And none of the household servants were there. In other words, there were no other men in the house at the time. Verse 12, she, Potiphar's wife, grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and ran outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make a fool of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he had heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. So clearly she's not getting Joseph to do what she wants. And so now she's going to punish him. One day there's no one else in the house. And so she grabs his garment. Uh, it's easy to gloss, gloss over here because the, or it's easy to miss this here. But, but Potiphar becomes the most aggressive yet, or his wife becomes most aggressive yet. And she still refuses. And she grabs his garment as he flees. Now what's worth noting here is that this is now the second time that Joseph's cloak or his, his garment, his jacket is a means of deception against him. So the first time his brothers, after they sold him into slavery, they ripped it up, put blood on it and told their dad he was killed by a wild animal, even though he wasn't. Now his wife, Potiphar's wife, after not getting Joseph to sleep with her, tells everybody about what's going on, takes his cloak and says, see, I grabbed it as he was trying to run away. And she uses it to spread another lie about Joseph. So Potiphar's wife becomes angry, makes up a story to incriminate Joseph for his refusal to sleep with her. And then she blames her husband, right? She says, whom you have brought to us in verse 17. This is the Hebrew you have brought to this. You made this happen. And so interestingly, here's Potiphar's response, verse 19. When his master, that's Joseph's master, heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious. Now, check this out. It's easy to miss this. The text here says Potiphar became furious. He became angry. What's easy to gloss over is that the text is actually deliberately ambiguous here. Because you, not, you might notice it doesn't say whom he is angry with. Now, you might assume clearly it's Joseph because Joseph, you know, tried to sleep with his wife and she's mad. And so she's yelling at him and now telling Potiphar, look what happened. So you might assume, well, clearly it's Joseph. Like, why would the, the narrator need to, you know, tell us who he's mad with? But remember, Potiphar has extreme trust in Joseph. Since Joseph has gotten there, everything has gone well for him. Even if he did believe his wife's account, now he is going to lose Joseph's services. 
And in the ancient world, particularly for a lot of high-ranking people, again, marriage for them often was not what marriage for us is. Uh, Potiphar probably got his sexual desires fulfilled in other places outside of his marriage. For a lot of high-ranking, high-class people in the ancient world, marriage primarily was a way of having children and continuing your legacy. Particularly if you were a man, you didn't have to love your wife. You didn't have to treat your wife well. And so they probably didn't have a typical you know, marriage relationship that you might have or you might expect people to have nowadays. And so even if this were true, even if he did believe his wife, he could be angry at the fact that now all the success that has come his way, he has to lose because he has to deal with Joseph since she told everybody what happened. In fact, verse 20 actually gives another hint that his anger might not actually be with Joseph. It says this in verse 20. So he's angry. Here's his response. And he had him thrown into prison. So we had Joseph thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. It's just important to know that attempted rape from a rape from a high-ranking official in the ancient world, particularly about a, from a slave, would have been a capital offense. He should have been killed. In fact, he would have been expected to be killed for doing something like this because you cannot have word spread. You can't have one slave do this and think other slaves can get away with it. He should have been killed, but he wasn't. He was thrown in jail. And not only was he not thrown in a typical dungeon or a typical pit, pit, he was thrown in the jail that Potiphar oversaw with high-ranking officials. That, uh, by the way, of Joseph was not one of those. He was just a slave. So he throws him in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. And the text, again, doesn't say this, but it made it so that if Potiphar wanted to, he could actually keep in contact with Joseph because he could visit him if he wanted to. And so he throws him into the prison that he oversees, and he doesn't kill him like he should have. In fact, it's, again, most likely, again, the text doesn't say this, but it's probably very typical that, that Potiphar's wife, this is not the first time she's done this. It's probably not the first time she's done this with how aggressive she is with Joseph. And if it is not the first time she's done this with somebody, then Potiphar wouldn't actually be angry with Joseph. In fact, she might not even, he might not even believe his wife because of what his wife has done in the past. The text is deliberately ambiguous about who he's angry with because it makes it seem that even he is like, I don't know about my wife. I actually, even if he believes his wife, like Joseph has been so good to him, he doesn't want to lose him either. And so Joseph goes from bad to worse. He's already enslaved. Now he's thrown into prison, which is not like a modern day prison. I mean, you want to think like dungeon, no AC, probably hardly eat anything. It is a terrible place. But then it says this in verse 21, which again, doesn't make a lot of sense. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. What? I mean, that's that's, that's weird, right? He he was with Joseph and he extended kindness to him, by the way, by making his life go from worse to worse. Then it says, he granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything he did, that is Joseph, successful. So again, wherever Joseph finds himself, he gains favor with the people he's with. He's clearly a hard worker. He's trustworthy. And so he helps kind of run the prison cell for the rest of the prisoners. He's entrusted with the keeper of the prison in the very same way that he was entrusted with Potiphar in his house. Essentially, he becomes the highest ranking prisoner in the prison to help run things and moderate things with the rest of the people in jail. But again, I just want to point out what verse 21 says. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor. 
Now, this does not make a lot of sense. I mean, let's just be honest. This does not make a lot of sense. In fact, it would be easy for us to assume that if God shows Joseph love and favor, well, then he must be let out of prison, right? If he's in there particularly unjustly, and we're being told that God loves him and granted him favor and blessed him, well, you might assume that means, well, he's going to get out of jail because how else could God show his blessing and his favor but to get him, give him justice and to give him his freedom, Again, he's in there unfairly. He's a high character guy. He clearly wants to honor God in everything that he does. This would be the correct result, that God grants him his freedom. That's what God should do, or so we would think. Again, we should not assume that being a high-ranking person in a prison was a good place to be. It was a dreadful place for him to be. In fact, later in the Joseph story, we are going to see that this imprisonment actually turns out good for Joseph. And if you know the Joseph story, you might know how kind of things go from here, and you might know how crucial this was to what God was going to do. And while that is true, again, Joseph in this moment could not have predicted what was going to happen to him, nor would he have felt any of that stuff was going to happen to him in his current situation. You want to know how Joseph probably felt in prison? Abandoned by God. I mean... There's no way not to feel that way. There's no way not to have doubts. There's no way not to say, God, I've done everything you asked for, and this is what's happened to me. Yet, in the midst of all of whatever Joseph might be going through, he still appeared to work hard. He still appeared to be faithful, even though surely he had doubts of his own, and he rises and ranked in the prison. And then in verse 23, the chapter 29 ends by saying this, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So just like everywhere else he's been, he's been successful at where he has been. But you want to know what God didn't do? He didn't get him out of prison. He didn't rescue him from someplace he did not deserve to be in. And I just think for us, as we read a text like this, and as you and I maybe reflect on our own lives, could it not be that God not granting us what we would want to have happen in our current situation, even if what we want is right and fair, just like Joseph getting out of prison, could it be that it does not mean that God has abandoned us or no longer loves us, right? In this text, we see how Joseph feels is not what's actually true about God. Like, I'll just be honest with you. I mean, uh, even this year, so my wife and I this year became foster uh, parents, and so we went through all the training, and we got our first placement a couple months ago, and you're thinking, like, we're doing the right thing here. Like, you know, obviously, we're going to see how this thing goes, and we're told it was going to be a long-term placement, and the kid kid that was with us for our first placement, he was only with us for seven weeks before he got sent to another home. We found another biological brother, and all these sort of things. It It was a good situation for him, but it was a hard situation for us. You do all this work and you begin to think like, oh, we're providing a home. Like it's a long-term, it actually might actually end up turning into an adoption. And so we're getting our home ready, all these things. And then we're told halfway through, oh, by the way, he's leaving. And you begin to question like, God, we want to be foster parents. Like we're trying to do this right thing. And that this is what happened. It did not end how we wanted it to end. And so what this text shows us this morning is this, is that unanswered prayer does not equal abandonment from God. So as we're talking about, what do we need to remember when God doesn't come through? What we see happening here is that unanswered prayer does not mean or does not equal abandonment from God. That's what this story is showing us. Now, we might feel that way. It might seem that way in the moment, right? Not getting the result we want, however, does not mean that God's not doing something. And when I say uh, unanswered prayer, God's always doing things. He's just not answering in the way that we want him to answer it. And so for Joseph and, and for us, like we, we may not like it, uh, we might not understand it, but God here in this story is still with Joseph, 
even if Joseph doesn't think, think that's the case at this moment. So as hard and as difficult as it might be, this text shows us that unanswered prayer does not therefore equal that God has abandoned you. Because we're told time and time again, he hasn't abandoned Joseph, contrary to everything Joseph has to feel in this moment, right? So all these bad things keep happening to Joseph, and actually, it's going to get worse. Verse, chapter 40, verse 1, it then says this, after this, the king of Egypt's cupbearer and baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guards in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guards assigned Joseph to them as their personal attendant, and they were in custody for some time. So at this point in the Joseph story, as you continue reading, we'll find out at this point, he's been in captivity for about 10 to 11 years. Now, we don't know how much of that was just in slavery and how much of that was in prison. But up until this point, he's been there for about 10 to 11 years. Things have not gone well for him at all. And then two of uh, Pharaoh's officials get thrown into this prisoner's uh, prison. Uh, the cupbearer was someone who was entrusted by the king with their lives. So they would typically taste any drink, most often wine, and eat some of the food before it was given to the king to ensure that the king was not poisoned. So uh, a cupbearer would have been with the king everywhere he went. He would have been uh, part of really uh, classified and highly sensitive information. He would have been everywhere uh, before, with the king before he would eat any of his meals. So he had a, a very high position. He had a, a lot of access. And then you had the uh, chief baker, uh, the one of the people who were kind of his head chefs, if you will, making the food for Pharaoh. And so in the ancient world, if you wanted to conspire against a ruler, these were two of the positions that you would bribe or a cupbearer, or a chief baker. These are two of the positions that you would try to bribe and get into to kill the king. So both of them are in prison, whether they did something wrong or not, or the king or Pharaoh was just paranoid with them, we're not told, but they both get thrown into prison, and they're both awaiting their fates. And so what happens, let me just explain what happens next. Um, one night, both of them, the, uh, the cupbearer and the chief baker, they both have dreams. The next day, they wake up, and they look very despondent and downcast. And so Joseph asks them what happened. They tell Joseph they both had a dream, uh, but they don't have anyone to interpret it for them. They don't know what it means. And so Joseph tells them, don't interpretations belong to, to God? Please tell me. In other words, Joseph's saying, uh, you might not know what they mean, but my God can tell us what they mean. So tell me what your dreams are, that Yahweh can tell them. So they go and tell Joseph their dreams. The cupbearer goes first, and he tells them that he essentially has a dream where there is a vine with three branches that ripen into grapes. And Joseph tells him that what that means is that in three days, Pharaoh is actually going to restore you to your position of a cupbearer again. Essentially, you're going to be found guilt or innocent of any uh, uh, transgressions uh, accused, accused against you, and you're going to get your job back. And then Joseph says this in verse 14. He says this to the cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen from the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that it should put me into the pit." And so the chief baker hears this. He gets really excited. He assumes, well, uh, the cupbearer's dream was good, so my dream is probably going to be good. And so he shares his dream with Joseph. It's essentially that there are three cake baskets that were baked for Pharaoh, but birds were eating out of each of the cake baskets. So Joseph tells him that in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, you will be killed, and you will be hung on a tree. In other words, you're going to be found guilty of whatever you're in here for, and he's going to kill you. 
And then on the third day, things happen just as Joseph says. It says this in verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 40. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He elevated the chief cupbearer and the chief baker among his servants. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But Pharaoh hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. In other words, everything happens just as Joseph said it would happen, yet the cupbearer forgets him. Now, this could have been like, like he just kind of forgot, you know, what was happening and the excitement of everything. Or this could be like not literally forgot, but in the sense that he simply did not care enough to mention jo- what Joseph did to Pharaoh. Like he didn't want to maybe impose on Pharaoh or, or, or give Pharaoh some unasked for advice. And so he doesn't say anything to Pharaoh that there's this guy that can interpret dreams, which in the ancient world was kind of a big deal, uh, in, in prison. He says nothing. And, and Joseph is forgotten. In other words, he's wronged and he's forgotten and he's abandoned again. Now, again, we're reading these stories kind of quickly, but can you imagine Joseph here, right? You have done everything right in the past 11 years of your life and things have only gotten worse and worse for you. You've only suffered more and more. Everything right and all he ever suffers is wrong. Can you imagine that? And here's what I know. While your story may be different, the answer for many of you might be yes, you can. You know what it's like to try to honor God, to try to do the right thing, and yet you experience nothing but suffering. But you've prayed, you've promised God, you've honored him, and still nothing. Your story might be different, but your feelings might be the same, especially if what you're asking God to do is not something like, give me like a $100,000 raise, or let me move into this amazing house. Like You're just praying for someone who doesn't know the Lord, or you're praying for a friend or a family member that is suffering from an incurable disease, right? You're asking God to do something good, and he's not answering it, and he's not doing it. So one of the other things we see in this text is this, that faithfulness does not equal unanswered prayer. So one of the things this shows us in the midst of our doubts and questions, although it doesn't make it easier, it's important for us to know that just because you do the right thing does not mean God will do what you want him to do. Now, it certainly can. There are many stories and examples in scriptures where people were faithful and God blessed them and honored them. It can happen, but what this story shows us is that it's not guaranteed. There is no guarantee that you and I can get God to do what we want God to do, even if what we want God to do is a good and right and holy thing. And so I just think a helpful question that you and I can ask when we're reading the scriptures is this, what about this story do I not like? Especially as we come to texts that are confusing and hard, I think it is healthy and good to read stories and be like, man, what what challenges me about this text? What do I not like about this text? And I think in this story, it's really easy to answer. Because what this story tells us is that good people who love and honor God will suffer and have no idea why. That's what this story tells us. Don't you wish you went to the fair instead this morning, right? <laughs> that you can be a great God-honoring, God-fearing, be generous, ser- serve the Lord, and you can suffer and in this life have no idea why it is. That's what this tells, text tells us. So the question then becomes, well, what do we do? Like, what do we do if you're faithful and you're praying and you feel abandoned and God does not answer your prayer? Should I try to continue to do the right thing, asking God for a good thing, and just continue to suffer? What do we do? 
Well, I think as, you, as we read this story and as you think of the own, your own suffering and hardships in your own life and the suffering in your own lives, I think what we can do is that we can be reminded of someone else who knows exactly what that is like. You know, what's interesting uh, in this text, and we're going to see this a lot over the, la- the end of the, our time in Genesis, is that in this story, this, in, this, in chapter 40, uh, you might come to think of who else in the scriptures is depicted about being between two criminals that will have something significant happen to him on the third day. Where one criminal ends up hearing great news that life will be spared and they will be exalted, and another criminal is going to be condemned. Well, if you're not sure where that is, you can read about it in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus is on the cross in between two criminals, just like Joseph is in between two criminals, and he's prophesying about an event that will happen on the third day. Jesus says this to one of the criminals who actually, when when Jesus was first on the cross, both criminals were kind of like mocking him, but one eventually changed this too, and it says this in Luke 23, then he said, one of the criminals on the cross, said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus responded, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And of course, unlike the cupbearer in prison, you know who doesn't forget his promises? You know who will do exactly what he says? This is why in the book of Hebrews, the last thing we'll read this morning, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, our suffering servant. And he says this in verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in times of need. See, the good news of the gospel is that God came in the form of a man named Jesus, lived a life we did not deserve, did everything right, like perfectly right. And like Joseph, however, things just went worse and worse and worse for him. He died the death that he did not deserve to die so that you and I might receive the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. The good news of the gospel is that God has done for you what you could never do for yourself, and he's inviting you in. Not by your trying really hard or your being a great person, because he knows that none of us can attain the level of perfection that God requires. And so he sent Jesus, the perfect son of God, to stand in our place as our substitute. And so what this Hebrews passage is telling us, again, in the backdrop of Genesis 39 and 40, I think is this, that we need to remember that God does not promise to rescue us from doubt, but to sympathize with our weakness. He doesn't promise to answer the prayers the way that you want them answered. He doesn't promise that you're going to live your best life now if you just do X, Y, and Z, but he does promise to sympathize with us. He does promise to to walk with us, to know what it's like to feel like you're abandoned. I mean, what does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, for eternity past, they were in perfect communion together. And as he takes away the sins of the world, God turns his face away from him. And what he felt? He felt abandoned. He felt disconnected from the Father. And so again, for us this morning, what do we need to remember when God doesn't come through? Well, here's what I would say, that the gospel is not for good people who have all that they need. It is for broken people who wonder if God can be trusted. 
The gospel of what Christ has done for us is not good people who have all that they need, who have figured it out on their own, who think they can prove it on their own. It is for broken people full of doubts and questions who wonder if God can really be trusted, if God really cares, if God really loves him. But in order for us to experience the love of God, it does require us in faith to trust him, sometimes in the midst of all doubt. In the midst of all irrationality, the gospel is an invitation for doubters and seekers to find hope, sometimes in the face of great uncertainty. Great uncertainty. In fact, um, honestly, I, about a month ago, I read a book uh, because of some old, my own doubts that I've been wrestling through. It's called On a Doubt by Adre Swoboda. On Doubt by Adre Swoboda. Uh, if you're interested in it, it was really helpful. Like, how do we in, uh, wrestle with like our suffering and intellectual doubts and the God of the Bible? But that's who it is. That, that God is the one who redeems us and cares for us and walks with us. He doesn't promise to fix all our problems, but he promises to walk with us in the midst of that deep suffering. And so I just want to say this, man, if you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he welcomes your doubts. He welcomes your sin. He welcomes your brokenness. And listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, he's inviting you to come and follow him. And the first command that God gives us after we follow Jesus is to walk with him in baptism. Not that baptism saves us, but it's an outward declaration of what Christ has done for us. And so I just want to say this. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning and have you have not yet been baptized, I highly doubt you're going to, you're going to follow God whatever he asks you to do if you won't follow him in baptism. So I just want to say, like, if, you're, if you want to take that next step, that's your next step. Let's talk and let's baptize and let's celebrate what God is going to do in your life. And for the rest of us here this morning that are followers of Jesus, man, you need to know that today you don't have to promise to be better. You don't have to work harder. That today you can just confess your brokenness. And you can be reminded that in the midst of your doubts and your pain and your suffering, God sympathizes. God is there. And that we can trust him.